questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. This is a very special edition of Restoring the Soul, so much so that I have invited Michael, yours truly, to join me for this introduction so he and I could let you know after this podcast releases this week, Restoring the Soul will have reached a huge milestone for an independently produced podcast. Hello, Michael. Hello. It is great to be here. Another early morning in Colorado and mid-morning for you. Um, I am thrilled for this announcement. And if we had uh, a marching band here or a snare drum, we could do a drum roll, right? <laughs> we could do whatever we want. It's the magic of technology. Yeah. Well, I am I'm really thrilled to share with our listeners that uh, the Restoring the Soul podcast has crossed the threshold of a million downloads. Wow. And uh, this started out as a dream back in 2016, and it's grown into something that's been life-giving and helpful for thousands of listeners around the world. And how we came to work together is a, a pretty fascinating story. So I'm so grateful to you for being the guy that hits the right buttons at the right time and edits most of my inappropriate comments. <laughs> um, and uh, it's just been great to partner with you. And I just so appreciate what you have done, especially helping it to grow. And I'm so thankful, too, for the people that listen and uh, have given feedback and who have been blessed by it. Mm. Yeah, I, I would have never imagined that we would have gotten to this point. But here we are. I still recall our first conversation. My family and I were living in Seoul, South Korea at the time in uh, 2016 and was referred to you by a mutual friend of ours. And man, I had no idea we're going to be able to how to overcome uh, time difference. I think it was like 11 hours difference and then technology. But, uh, you know, we're smart. We figured it out. And uh, over the past four years, Michael, I've, I've really come to respect you, uh, to count on you. I look up to you. And, man, I, I learn a ton from each podcast each week. I look forward to the conversations. And I'm just a better person from knowing you and working on this uh, podcast together. It's truly a labor of love. And, Michael, I count you as a dear friend. And, uh, man, I wish we were closer uh, together. I wish we could see our pretty faces uh, every day, but but I'll take what I can get. Back when you were in South Korea, we didn't meet for like the first year and a half, and then you were coming through the states, and we got to uh, uh, get together, and we had some kimchi, and I had actually been to South Korea, so that was fun. I was there just before I knew you, but now you're in Cincinnati, and I'm in Colorado, and that's how this works, right over the interweb. That's right. Do you have any? Um special memories or anything that stands out from from the years that you've been working on this podcast? You mean like memories related to the podcast or memories like I was hiking with my family and I fell off a tree that I was climbing and bouncing on and I broke my rib. That happened during the podcast. That'll count. Yeah, that counts. No. Uh, gosh, yes. Uh, the first thing I think of is when we do uh, our counseling intensives in Colorado People come and they and they they speak about this particular episode or that particular episode, and it's been really, really gratifying and frankly surprising to see how uh, the podcast really nourishes and nurtures people and opens up other pathways of thinking, and um, that in in a lot of ways it's it's kind of like shepherding people. And I've always considered my core identity that of a of a pastor and a minister and a counselor and a provocateur, and it allows the podcast just allows for all of that to come together. But uh, two years ago, I was speaking at a missions conference in Indiana on soul care, and uh, a woman from Australia had emailed me oh, prior to that early on in the podcast and just said, thanks for what you're doing. And she happened to be at this conference, and she came up to me, and we got to talk you know, about how... In the Southern Hemisphere, she was listening to this. Uh, I think of my friends Eling and Thaddeus that uh, live in Hong Kong, 
and I hope you guys are listening now. They're dear friends, and uh, they heard about us through Typology, Ian's uh, podcast about the Enneagram, and then they connected with our podcast. And as they were coming through America, we got to spend some time together, and it's just so, so cool. You know, I was a, uh, I had about five different majors as an undergrad and ultimately barely graduated in six years with a social studies education degree. But for two years, I was a broadcasting major and um, I wanted to be a DJ uh, because one of the gifts that God's given me is I can, I can talk about anything for a long time and sound halfway intelligent. And I never thought that would come around. I mean, I, I went down a different path, obviously. But when, when podcasting came about in the early days, um, long before I ever thought I would have a podcast show, I, uh, I took my very basic knowledge of how to plug in a microphone, and I would go speak at places. And if there was someone that was interesting to me, I would, I would say, will you sit down and have a conversation? So a recent podcast with Bill Thrall um, you may or may not have mentioned this, but I think that was 2009. And I was speaking at a conference with Bill and I said, can we sit down in the lobby and, uh, can I just pick your brain? And Dallas Willard, same thing, um, where that was further back. Pete Scazzaro, he was coming through, uh, Denver, speaking at Denver Seminary. <laughs> we were sitting in the lobby of the, uh, the Marriott Town Place Suites, drinking really bad coffee and having a great conversation. So it just, it just allows me to plug into people that are fascinating, that have touched my life. And I like to think about with the craziness inside of me and the questions that I have and the struggles that I've had that, uh, the conversations and the thoughts that are shared that it's it's helping people and i've i've gotten that feedback mm. yeah we we've uh, you know received a ton of comments if if uh, you guys are listening through uh, itunes um uh, you can uh, read, you know, how uh, how it's been a blessing to so many. And, and I just want to encourage you guys to keep it up wherever you receive your podcast uh, or even feel free to uh, to send us an, an email and, and stay connected. It truly is a, a, a global uh, phenomenon uh, and the ability for us to be able to connect with people all over the world. I think we should mention probably the greatest highlight of the podcast has been and you send me these weekly reports, like how many countries we're in. And I think it's now over 60 countries. And frankly, that means that, you know, one person on vacation uh, <laughs> might have downloaded the podcast in, in Fiji. some remote country. <laughs> right. So please, another drum roll. We were the number one podcast in Christianity. And I'm talking about like, you know, Andy Stanley's podcast and, and Lisa Turkers and people that have, you know, 20 million listeners a week. That's this category of Christianity. We were the number one Christianity podcast in Fiji <laughs> for two weeks. I wish I knew the language. I would I would do a, a Fijian uh, greeting uh, to our well, listeners that, there. That may or may not be appropriate, but here, but here's the thing. I mean, wow! I was the number one podcast in Fiji for two weeks, hmm. and and we found out that there, you know, there was one missionary that was flying through there on their way to Kuala Lumpur or something like that, and they downloaded the podcast while they were there. But that's just it's just cool stuff. Yeah, congratulations uh, once again, and here's to another million downloads for restoring the soul. Yeah, thank you. What's coming up this week on the podcast? Yeah, man, uh, when when I had heard uh, that you were going to be interviewing Morgan Snyder uh, today, man, I just have been really been looking forward to this conversation. Um, you sp spoke with Morgan about his latest book release, uh, Becoming a King, The Path to Restoring the Heart of a Man. And you may know this, uh, Morgan and I used to be neighbors, uh, lived down the street from one another in Colorado Springs and Truth be told, I've, I've always looked up to him. He's in my eyes, just like a man's man, but he, he would be the first to say, no way, no way. So I've been keeping a close ear and eye on what the Lord's been doing through him. And man, I literally sat on the edge of my seat as I was editing uh, the audio to this conversation. Um, allow me to spoil one part of your discussion, uh, and then we'll get to it. Um, after reading Become a King, um, you, you say that it pissed you off, it disrupted you, then it awakened an appetite for more, which in turn gave you hope, which is where you're at now. What's, what's this hope, Michael, that you were thinking of when you made those statements uh, about the book to Morgan? 
the hope was that there could be something that even at the age of 56 that would shift in me in regard to how I perceive myself as a man. And Morgan's book, Becoming a King, is is written to men, but it's also for women to understand the heart of a man and the path of a man. And uh, when I read Wild at Heart in 2000, you know, and that book has now sold 5 million copies and it's impacted men around the world, I I threw the book, I slammed it down, and I thought, uh, I don't camp, uh, canoe, or hunt, and therefore I'm kind of excluded from this. And I've gotten to know John since then, and he's a passionate, wild, outdoors guy, but uh, he's not the caricature of that. So when I read Morgan's book, I, I, I literally kind of said, well, if I look at myself like a man, I'm a D plus or a C minus on a grading scale. And I don't have that perception of myself as a human being. I think, you know, God's given me a mind that goes a million miles an hour and I can be pretty relational and I've been hugely blessed and I've done a lot of work to become uh, a substantial person. And I say that humbly. Uh, but as a man, you know, I, I don't hunt. I'm afraid of guns because I didn't grow up with them. If you were to ask me, you know, who are three players in the NFL, I couldn't tell you that. I don't understand basketball other than the fact that the ball goes back and forth. And uh, when I when I have a pocket knife, I usually cut myself. And uh, as I as I read the first second chapter of the book, I was like, oh crap! Here comes another book that's telling me actually how I'm not a man, and that to achieve this stronger, more grounded sense of connection to who God made me as a man in his image, that I've got to go do stuff that I don't want to do. And it just makes you want to close the book and then just move on. Yeah. And and what what the book did was it actually drew out something deeper than that. And it helped me see the resistance that's there because of the fear of inadequacy. Deep down, I'd like to go out with guns and shoot things, you know, not necessarily small animals, but like to blow stuff up. And deep down, I'd like to be the guy that pulls out my pocket knife and says, oh, let me open that Amazon package. Um, but but if you don't grow up with that and if you've not had another man kind of show you and walk with you, it can be so intimidating. So, you know, just when we think I'm good, I've done my work, uh, I'm going to kind of cruise home till I'm with Jesus uh, it it really said there's more for me. So it really did take me through that progression. Uh, but ultimately, I found myself saying there's there's a there's a path for me that that doesn't involve, you know, having to wear camo uh, and, uh, you know, put a gun rack on the back of my non-existent pickup truck. Mm. Yeah. And this and Morgan, you know, as, as people like to say, he he's putting the cookies on the uh, a lower shelf, um, this message of uh, biblical masculinity and and fulfilling all that God has has designed you to be is so accessible and and I was I was really encouraged by it. In fact, I I excerpted you know some of the conversation and sent it to all all of my uh, friends who needed needed to hear and be encouraged uh, by this message. So we've talked um, long enough. Uh, I just I can't wait to uh, to hit play on this conversation so everybody else can uh, can join in on it. So again, Michael, congratulations on the millionth uh, download, and uh, here's uh, here's to a million more with restoring the soul. Um, so let's go ahead and say it without any further delay. Here's Michael John Cusick and his conversation with Morgan Snyder on restoring the soul. Welcome to the program, all of our listeners. And I am uh, talking with today a man that I, I care deeply about because of his heart and his journey. Morgan Snyder, welcome to the podcast. Michael, thank you so much. It's truly good to be with the like-hearted. My heart's going back to when you were in my office and we got to connect over a few hours, just swapping stories of the kingdom um, from different battle fronts in the same mission. And so, boy, I've done a lot of interviews, a lot of podcasts, but it is a treat. It is a true honor and privilege to be with the like-hearted and to uh, try to offer some love to your tribe. I really appreciate that. And I, I know you will. 
You have a brand new book out called Becoming a King, The Path to Restoring the Heart of a Man. And that's a, a topic that has been uh, near and dear to my heart. And I've been about that for the last 25, 30 years. I want you to, uh, or I, I would I would be honored if you read the introduction to the first chapter of your book. But as you write this, people will find out that this book is not an academic treatise on here's, you know, stuff that you should know about men or here's how men can get fixed, but it's really deeply personal from your own journey. And it's a journey that you've lived. So would you do the honor of reading that section to open up chapter one? Yeah, thank you, Michael. I would be honored. Do you remember your first taste of power? I can still hear the blades engaging on our 1976 Cub Cadet riding mower. I was eight years old, and after I rode on his lap a few times, my dad put me behind the wheel. I distinctly remember taking that throttle for the first time as my dad stepped aside and turned me loose. I was given rule and dominion over a half an acre lawn that hugged a strip of western Pennsylvania woods, and I loved it. For the first time, I felt the masculine surge of a sort of fierce mastery over a domain. Even now, several decades later, the smell of freshly cut grass takes my soul back to that moment of being entrusted with power. What have you done with the desire to be powerful? Here is the unapologetic premise of this book the desire to be powerful to lead, to care for, to bring goodness to a man's realm is central to the soul. The storyline of what we do with power is the path to recovering the depth and breadth of what God meant when he made you and me. While it expresses itself in infinite ways, this desire to be powerful is common to us all. It's in our design. Regardless of what we look like, where we come from, and what we do for work, all of us can identify with this desire uniquely expressed in our lives. Think of what you long to have spoken about your life in your eulogy. What if, among stories of shared adventure and intimate relationships, the people closest to you were able to speak words like these? He lived and led with wisdom vulnerability, and courage. He shaped the world for good and left a lasting legacy. He loved well and loved deeply from a sincere heart, and he finished strong. Thank you for reading that. Beautiful words, and I think it sets the tone for the rest of the book and for your heart and your journey. So I want to start with your premise is that the desire to be powerful is central to the soul. But we live in a culture today where, especially for men, as there's conversation about toxic masculinity uh, and the very real damage that men have done by the misuse of power, I think a lot of people, including men that I know, and even myself at times, how legitimate is power? Isn't there something about that that it's not okay? So why should this idea of power be a category for men? Yeah, Michael, I really appreciate that question. It's it's central and it's vital. And there is a core question of the legitimacy of power. You know, earlier in preparation for our time, I went on Google and I just searched the news and I looked at the top 10 stories for today. And the majority of the stories were around this central theme is it was the mishandling of power entrusted to men. And you just pause there and just think that's the reality in which we live. As, as you articulated well, there has been terrible harm done in places in the name of masculine power. And let me just talk more frankly, I have done harm in the place of masculine power. And it brings up a dilemma. But as we recover the ancient path and as we explore the text of reality, as we recover design, what we find is that what's at the base 
you know, what Parker Palmer says is there is a river of life below the ice, only what is visible in winter. There's a river of life. And that river of life is designed that I believe fundamentally the most important thing we can know about any human being is that they bear the image of God, that Imago Dei, as men and as women. And so masculine power is meant for good. It's intended to be good when it's wholehearted and in the service of love. But here's the dilemma. Dallas Willard articulates it so well, and I unpack it in Becoming a King, where he says the primary work of God is finding men and women in whom he can entrust his power, the story of most men is being entrusted with power and it bringing harm to themselves and those under their care. That causes me pause. That's sober. And yet it also begs a curiosity. How can we move towards restoration to see that power restored, made whole and available in the service of love rather than simply trying to to destroy it, because when we destroy it, we actually cut off the power of God intended to bring the restoration of all things. And you write this question in what you just read, what have you done with the desire to be powerful? And we've both seen in our own lives and in the work and ministry that we do, all the different kind of uh, tributaries for what we do with power. But what are the common ways that men uh, respond with this desire because I would I would imagine that it includes not having desire for power and just living castrated or living impotent. Yeah, it's fascinating. You, you can see the themes, like right. There are these generalities. You you see caricatures, and often when that power is uninitiated, when it's in service of what you could name the inner child or the boy within the man, often. It comes in the form of aggression. You see it played out um, of power over people rather than the power to serve and come under. Right? Jesus modeled the life of a son well, where he led and with the heart of a servant and he served with the heart of a king. And it's the opposite of what we often see. So you see this power over to, to rule, to dominate, to use people and things out of a reaching to get my question answered, right? To find that validation. And so often we look to use people to build, to build a name for ourselves, to build something, to get something going, to make a little money. It's a, it's a power over or the opposite, right? As you named, it's usually avoidance of power where we are ambivalent. And so rather than exercising power in a true authenticity, in a true vulnerability and courage where we don't know the outcomes, where there are things we cannot control, where we're taking genuine risks, we, you know, abdicate power, we release responsibility, we settle, I, I love Brene's term, uh, for engineering smallness. Whatever it is we do, even if it looks big on the external landscape, we settle for engineering a small life, something that feels like we can arrange for safety and security and manage a small story where it requires us to never change. And so if we take these extremes, either the abuse of power by this false aggression or the lack of loving power by this false abdication, and instead we say, what is true power? Where we risk offering strength, always with a posture of curiosity of the questions, where do I need to grow? How do I need to learn? And ultimately, how do I offer power that's actually not autonomous, but it's living in union with God, literally living out of a response to a God-initiated world, a Father-centered view of reality? Oh, that's so good. As people are hearing um, this conversation about power, they might be thinking power is being a best-selling author, making a lot of money, being famous, having a, quote, platform. But what you just read and what the book starts out with is the power that you felt as an eight-year-old boy riding the lawnmower and your dad had entrusted that to you. So talk about how sometimes, even in light of the engineering smallness reality, how power real power can actually be obscure 
and um, not felt in that way that we think about it, like in terms of, you know, global repercussions. Yes, right. Because we're talking about design. In other words, it's literally our nature. It's our essence. You know, one one wise author said that the fish is the last one to discover water, Mm. right? Because it's literally a fish's reality. And so, yeah, I'll give an example. Um, Yesterday was my son, Joshua, and my daughter, Abigail, their first day of school. My son turned 16 a few months ago, and my daughter turned 13. And for 11 years, the beginning of school meant carpool. We, we go to a small school in Colorado Springs and there's no buses and we drive the kids to school. And here were mom and dad getting the kids ready for school. And literally everything in my body is ready to go take them to school. But my son's driving now and he has a car that he, you know, uh, earned the money during COVID landscaping the neighbor's house to buy. And my daughter and my son are getting into their own vehicle and driving away. And my wife and I are in the driveway with such mixed emotions. And one of them is a sadness because my son now has this increased kingdom. That is to say, like, we all have a kingdom, Michael, every man and every woman. Uh, We are kings and queens. We have a realm entrusted to our care. We have an area where we have say. Dallas Willard says it's where what we want done is done. And so, my son chose during COVID to use his time to mow lawns, to make money, to drive a car. And when he turned 16, we had a, a key ceremony where I passed him the keys, where it was a it was a significant expansion in his power, in his kingdom. And I felt sadness because I knew his kingdom was expanding beyond that which I could control as dad. And when I think about when I was given the keys to a car at 16. I was so ill-equipped. I was so uninitiated. And so I felt this sadness of how big his kingdom has become. And at the same time, we had joy because our son is actually on time. He's ready for this challenge and he's blessed to do it. And we've told him, you have room to fail. You have room to make stakes. Let's learn this together. But son, you're ready for this. This is on time and we celebrate you. And so here we are with this sadness, but also with this celebration. And Sherry and I just broke out into this wild dance right in this, the midst of suburbia. And I, and I couldn't even name the dance because we were so sad to watch them grow up. And at the same time, I think the celebration was here's a young man being entrusted with increasing power. And though it's risky, he's ready to bring a greater good and a greater love to the world through that power. What a great personal example of that. So close to home. I didn't share this phrase with you, but this is a, a, maybe a backhanded compliment that becoming a king really pissed me off as I read it. And um, that was that was the starting place. But then it started to awaken my appetite as it disrupted me. And I think I, I finished it with a sense of hope. But would you go ahead and um, I sent you an email earlier today, yes. re- real time. There's a story. You want to you want to share a story about the Gerber knife? You don't have to read that, but just refer to it. And then that'll set that'll the context. Great. That'll be great. It's such a joy bomb. This is where, you know, just to your listeners, what I so appreciate, Michael, about your life is it's total authenticity. Like you are who you are on mic and off in counseling and in your home. And that's my experience of you that, you know, one mentor said that the goal is to be authentic with everybody, transparent with some and intimate with even fewer. And I've held that tightly to say, how can I be authentic through and through? And that's my experience of you. And so you you sent this email this morning and I just laughed with joy. And you said, I'm really looking forward to connecting with you today. I thought becoming a king would be a good read and helpful to minister to others. However, the father had other plans. Your amazing book pissed me off. And then it disrupted me. And then it awakened an appetite for more. And then it gave me hope, which is where I'm at now. And I smile as I took this picture below only a few minutes ago. It's a picture of your Gerber knife. It said, I've had this dang Gerber knife in my drawer at work. 
as if that's where it's useful. And I don't even know how to close the darn thing. I'm not leaving my office today before I figure out how to close it, to put it in my pocket and to carry it around as a first step towards what the father is doing. Yeah, I sent that off because this is what your your book disrupted in me is I just turned 56 years old and I'm I'm successful. I think I'm a king in certain ways in terms of uh, the ministry and the platform that God's given me and the inner healing and restoration of my life. And yet I grew up in an urban area. I got kicked out of uh, Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts. I forget where. <laughs> I, uh, I, I have moderate levels of anxiety when I'm around uh, sleeping bags, backpacks, and hatchets. And so I've been the guy who, you know, I read Wild at Heart and I said, great, you know, that's not me. And there's been a detachment from mm. this fierce masculine self, like, well, why would I want to carry a knife? That's for rednecks or, or that's for guys that are really good at fixing things. And I'm not. So, as you talked in this chapter, and and frankly, this was the most powerful chapter for me, where you talked Mm. about becoming a generalist. Can you talk about this idea of what is a generalist, why it is that this is so important for a man to get his heart back? Yeah, boy, we we could go a long time on this because this this is gold. I, I want to capture a few words that you just shared, reflect them back, because just to be named, it's so easy to create masculine caricatures that actually are false safety, like of, of a sense of false security away from the true thing, true and holy masculinity that's embodied in the Trinity and bestowed upon us. And so I want to be really careful with false comparison and um, these caricatures. I grew up wearing Argyle socks, playing golf in suburbia. And so if there were any men I was most scared of, you said moderate anxiety, I would say I had a heavy, almost severe anxiety around man's men, like the, 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 the macho outdoors tools and weapons. I remember going to hunter safety with a buddy's whose dad was leading it, uh, Brasso. He was a cop and, and they showed this shotgun that just blew up from the inside out because the muzzle got clogged with dirt. And I just remember being terrified saying I could never handle a gun. And so I just want to name, I don't come from this world of Rambo, of initiated in the wild since the since my birth. You know, I worked at Jiffy Lube and, 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 my, and my manager said, some people were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. I was born with a wrench. <laughs> <laughs> I just loved it going, oh man, what have I got myself into? So I just want to name men who are listening, women who are listening, who love them. You're in good hands. We're not promoting a caricature. What we're trying to do is recover design. And so you use this word detachment, which I think is really important. I think another way to say is disassociation. But what I want to substitute in there is the word atrophy. Because what I believe is that there is a basis that God meant when he meant every man, it's universal and it's what we all share in common. And it's the foundation of a wholehearted, mature man on which I believe God creates the best work, builds the best house for the unique man that God intended for each of us to bring to the world. That unique gifting, that unique expression of God, that, that craftsman specialist that we might name it. And so here's what I mean. It's been said that often the best thing for the inside of a man is the outside of a horse. You know, it's been said, never trust a man who can't dance. It's been said that there's a man that feels powerful in the boardroom. He feels powerful on the golf course. He feels powerful at his fancy meal. And then his car breaks down. And then he feels six years old. And then the tow truck driver shows up and asks him the most terrifying question that a tow truck can drive, driver can ask when the hood is open. And he says, what do you think's wrong with it? And the guy feels six and he's freaking out going, oh my gosh, I don't know what the hell's wrong with it. What, what's wrong with it is it's 
broken. It was working and now it's not working and I don't know what to do. I'm scared and I'm exposed. And then there's the other man who was born with a wrench in his mouth, who can handle a tool, can handle a weapon, but you put him at the country club. You put him at the Broadmoor, at the five-star resort with a four-star meal. There are four wine glasses. There are three forks. What are you supposed to do with three forks at a meal? All of a sudden, he feels 12. He has no idea what to do. So, Michael, we have these two examples of a man that finds himself uncomfortable, that finds himself afraid, uncertain, uninitiated, fearful in the company of other men. And so the question is, where do you feel uninitiated? Where do you feel like you are lacking, where you are disqualified in the company of men? And this word that you used of detachment, um, I'm, I'm now substituting atrophy, that what if, like a muscle that's around a broken bone, where the muscle has atrophied, under the cast, even as the bone has healed, when the cast comes off, that muscle must be nourished, it must be tended to, it must be exercised to increase its strength so that it can become whole and useful. What if God is after the whole of a man, this entire foundation of what he meant by masculinity, and it's from this foundation of becoming a generalist that God can build the unique expression of what he meant individually by that man to bring to the world. And if a man is not moving into that wholeness, then his brokenness is going to spill out somewhere. And that's where we see power misused and abused or abdicated. Exactly right. Because we tend to go towards places where we feel strong right? Places where we feel a competency. And in the culture in which we live, a very unique time in human history, um, specialization is highly rewarded. So there were times in history where just by nature of society, we had to be more of a generalist. You had to know how to use a tool. You had to know how to read a content to learn and to use a weapon. But gone are those days, and we live in a place where everything has been boiled down to the lowest common denominator of utility, and we use money as a means of exchange. But the thing is, when a man knows how to fix a broken mower and knows how to fix a broken heart, he, he learns to not just avoid the places where he lacks competency, but in any situation, right? Like Paul says in his maturity, he says, now that I've learned the secret, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. He's a man who's become initiated, become wholehearted, and has learned to walk in true masculinity in union with God. Wow. So you contrast the uh, generalist with the the expert, the specialist, and then you talk about outsourcing versus soul sourcing. And I can relate to this. And here again is where it was so disruptive because I have said probably 500 times as a joke, yes. but it's really not a joke, that my wife and I don't do marriage counseling anymore. I just hire a handyman. Mm. And um, it's because I have a hard time hanging the towel bar because yes. I, I just keep putting 20 holes in the wall until it's in the right place. And recently, uh, I started a project about a month ago, hanging some shelves in my garage. Here's this initiation, yes. this sense of I'm going to make this happen. And I got about a third way into it. And I just went, nope, this is just not going to work. And I gave up. And then in anticipation of this interview, uh, last night, I said, I'm going to cut the wood, I'm going to attach it to the wall, and I'm going to figure it out after the interview, but I'm going to make it happen. Yes. And something felt really alive and strong mm. in me that felt like that atrophied muscle was given a workout, and it didn't feel like it you know, could win a competition yes. of lifting. But it felt so good. Like I'm, I was getting part of my heart back. And so, Michael, just reflecting back, first of all, well done. Like you just modeled 
what it looks like to move towards that place where you feel fearful or inadequate or, you know, lacking competency, because you're now in your late fifties, you have the maturity in certain areas where you could run on that at all your life. Right. But, but what happens is you recovered a new part of your masculine soul. And what's important about this is we can actually be really unkind to the boy inside because what I want to name is, in sadness of where was the man that was meant to say to you as a young boy, Hey son, come with me. Let me show you how to hang these shelves. Let me show you how to work with the grain of a wood. Let me show you how to use a tool. We're not meant to be experts overnight. That masculinity is a process of initiation. And so what's so important is what's at stake in a situation like the shelves is how will you handle the boy inside the man? And so, for example, I was a young married guy and we needed to have, our house was so hot and we couldn't afford air conditioning. We needed to do an all house attic fan, which I heard would help. And I was just in this process of recovering parts of the generalist where I wanted to do it myself, like your shelves, but I knew I didn't have the competency. I found a handyman and I called him up and I said, I've got a strange question. I will pay you full price to do this job if you will allow me to shadow you, because I want to learn how you do it. And he said, well, that's kind of different. No one's ever asked me that before, right? And his name was Skip, and he was this ordinary retired Marine. And he was so much what the boy in me needed in an uncle and a father. And about after two days, he goes, you know, he goes, you do it like you're smart. And I thought that was a compliment. But I knew there was something blowing. He goes, you know what you need? You need to do it more like you're stupid, not like you're smart. <laughs> and Michael, huh. all my life, I got rewarded for being really, really smart. And here was a guy saying, your smart is in the way right now for what you need from your father. And so do it stupid. In other words, do it intuitively. Do it like it's practice. Do it like the stakes are low. Enjoy the process. Knock off early and crack open a cold one and look at what you did and celebrate. Mm. So this brings up the issue. And so many of your chapters are, you know, they just got really great headings of um, be the man that you were born to be. But this this brings up if I step out from behind the mask of I can't build shelves. And and I might be less gifted at this than somebody more naturally, but I I can do it. And if I tell myself that truth, I'm actually stepping from my false self into my true self. Mm. And so this idea of the false self, that's really a lie. Say, Say more by what you mean by it's a lie. Yeah. When I think about building the shelves in my garage, shame comes up. Yes. Uh, number one is I've tried to build stuff before and it doesn't work. Mm. Uh, number two, I don't follow through on things. Number three, I'm looking at the other wall in the garage where there's 20 holes from where I tried to hang something and didn't find the stud. And so the false self can be performing. Yes. I'm going to, I'm going to be somebody I'm not, but it can also be living in the lie of, I don't have what it takes. Yes. And there's something underneath that, that we need to access. Just comment for a minute on the on the true versus false self. Yeah, it's so good. I, th- I think where I would describe, you know, uh, John, my mentor, one of my mentors describes the false self as an elaborate fig leaf, right? It's where we hide to avoid shame and fear. I think one way I'd say it, it's, it's what we do to make life work apart from God, right? And we have become very mature in our false self. We have become very sophisticated. But as Thomas Keating says, the sorrow of the false self is it's exhaustive because it's never enough. It's always about the next thing. It's like a bicycle wheel that's only stable when it's spinning. But as soon as it slows down, it loses its center of gravity because its center of gravity is self. Whereas the true self, the center of gravity is God. We weren't designed to live independently. And the Western worldview, uh, among many things, is so steeped in this fierce independence. Even just think about how we look at Jesus. If we pause and, and say, whatever else we see in him, we see this independent, wholehearted, 
human being that's perfect. But Jesus doesn't describe himself as independent. He says, nothing I do, I do apart from my father. When you see me, you see the father. He speaks of an utter dependency like we've never seen in humanity. It's strength through dependency. And so to recover the true self is to first become aware of the false self. Where do I feel shame? And where do I feel fear? And what is that bringing up? And what do I need to do in kindness to move towards those fears, to live in a way where God has to show up, where I come to know truly who God is, not as I've learned him to be, and who I am, not as I've learned myself to be. You make this statement, Morgan, um, we must risk venturing through the narrow gate of becoming. And when a Christian man hears that, uh, first of all, I think we hear that idea from Jesus about the narrow gate as evangelistic, and he's actually talking to the disciples. Mm. So it's more of a follow me kind of thing. Yes. And secondly, it's not a religious thing. We're talking about venturing and risking this through this narrow gate as me engaging with my shelves, that that's part of my following Christ and my spiritual formation. And one of the things I love about you and the ministry that you've been a part of is that there's not this disconnection from life, from relationships, from the difficult things, but that following Jesus is going deeper into those realities. So talk about, in the book, you obviously give the path and multiple chapters on how the man's heart gets restored. Yes. But what does it look like to walk through this narrow gate? And ultimately, how do we go from having that appetite and desire for power that is stewarded well, living as a beloved son, discovering our true heart, how do we get to that place of wholeness? Oh, boy, you're, you're, you're tapping into gold here. And there are several directions we could go with this. I think what's on my heart for this moment for our listeners is, oh, Ken Helser, one of my mentors says, we, could, we can see God in everything and we can miss him in anything. You know, when Jesus began his ministry, there was, there was no writing, there was no access to the scriptures for the average person. It wasn't how we hear teaching of take extensive notes and go get a degree. It was life on life. He enticed and disrupted and pulled the string that began to unravel the false in human beings and allow them to find their hope in the living God. It has to be real. It has to be accessible. It has to be in our ordinary, everyday life. And so what I would suggest is that it has to begin with this question of what is my frontier? What is the edge of my masculine initiation? What is the next piece God is after in my apprenticeship? You know, Lewis said that heaven is meant to be the consummation of our earthly apprenticeship, that we're all unfinished, me, the greatest among them in my unfinished places. There is so much at work. I'm on a road trip and I had to pause, pull over and simply call my wife to say, I'm sorry. I was wrong for our interaction yesterday. Will you forgive me? And so what I would suggest is that narrow gate is the farthest thing from religion. I believe it's very instructive where it says, whatever it is we're facing, there is a wide road. There is the majority direction. There's the pull and the magnetic field. And then there's a path that we know the fruit is what we're after. The fruit lines with the gospel's fruit. It's available to all. And I believe that at every moment, this is where it gets so utterly personal. That's why it's your shelves in your garage in this moment, or it's your knife that you're learning how to wield and to use on real things. It might begin with opening an Amazon box or cutting cellophane off of a steak from the grocery. But at every moment in every day, The father is initiating a doorway that has a handle only on one side that we can choose to respond to his initiative and say, I will follow you. I'm willing to risk. I'm willing to be curious. I'm willing to ask questions because I want my whole heart back as a man. I want my entire soul 
restored. And I want to become the kind of man, the kind of king that you, God, are glad to entrust the care of your kingdom. It starts here in this very human moment. And it's often just a one degree shift back towards life. Oh man, that is, that is so good. So good that God uses all of our life. He uses our life to give us our heart back as our life intersects with his. Yeah, it's so true. And that's where, you know, even in this, we live in a content saturated culture. We binge on these podcasts. We want more information and, and more is often not helpful. And so even for our listeners, I just want to invite them today. Just take a breath, just pause. And I invite you to be curious. The Holy Spirit is a teacher and a kind guide. The Father is at the center of all things. And Jesus offers all surpassing power. God acting through his death, resurrection, ascension to make it possible for us to begin, as St. Francis says, to do simply what is necessary so that then in time we can find ourselves doing what's possible. And in time and over time, suddenly we will find ourselves doing what's impossible. And so to our friends, I just want to say pause and say, what's necessary today? What is God speaking through Michael's story or through me where God's saying, I want to show you something. I have a gift for you and I have an invitation for you. Here's what's next. Do you want to come with me? I love it. Morgan, um, we are out of time, but I, I, you've got a standing invitation anytime to come back on. And I would love to unpack some of the other chapters in your book, but I'm so, so thankful for your new book, Becoming a King. I cannot commend it high enough to the people that are going to be listening to the podcast. And I really want to say thank you because you've been on the journey, but you also did the grueling labor that I know what it's like to get this onto paper and to to put it out there in a book. So thank you and bless you for your life and your sharing. Thanks, Michael. You know, from different fronts of the same war, um, we're, we're like-hearted fellow um, adventurers and of the soul and pilgrims going after the restoration of our hearts and the hearts of others. So it is an honor to be with you. It's truly a sincere joy. And thanks for taking the time. Oh, you're welcome. Bless you and enjoy the rest of your road trip. Thank you. So we've wrapped up another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. In fact, the heart of what we have done for nearly 20 years is intensive counseling. When you can't wait months or years to get out of the rut you're in, our intensive counseling programs in Colorado allow you to experience deep change in half-day blocks over two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.